If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 23rd chapter, the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 26, as we continue our study through the Word. Now, you'll remember that Jesus had celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples and afterwards heads over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And and there, Judas arrives uh, with the religious leaders and a crowd of soldiers to arrest him. And the disciples flee, and Jesus is taken to the house of Caiaphas. uh, And there he is interrogated. You'll remember that, that Peter makes his way into the courtyard at the high priest's palace there. And and you'll remember he's warming his hands by the fire. Three times he denies that he even knows Jesus. And the rooster crows and Jesus turns and looks at Peter and Peter just begins to weep bitterly. He had trusted in himself. He had trusted in his own strength. And he came to learn the lesson that that the flesh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And and he goes and, and weeps and departs from the Lord. You'll remember that Jesus had told him at the Last Supper that after you have returned, that you are to, to strengthen others. And, and so Peter departs. Jesus uh, is interrogated throughout the night. And finally, they ask him, are you the son of God? And he says, you say rightly. And they say, what further need do we have of any witnesses? And, and they accuse him of blasphemy. They gather the Sanhedrin at the break of day. They ratify the charge against him. And they whisk him off to Pilate. It is very early in the morning when they arrive at the residence uh, of Pilate there stationed in the Antonio Fortress. And and so they bring him to Pilate, demanding that he be put to death. They charge him that, uh, that, that he is a rebel, that he is leading an insurrection, telling people that they should not pay taxes and declaring that, that he himself uh, is a king. And And you'll remember that Pontius Pilate takes him and interrogates him. And and immediately he discerns that this is a religious issue, a religious matter. And Rome has no desire to settle religious issues among the Jews. And and so he simply declares to them that that he finds no fault with this man. And they become more agitated and they press the matter all the further. Pilate takes Jesus back and, and interrogates him some more, discovers that he's a Galilean. And when he discovers that he's a Galilean, he passes him over to Herod, who also was in Jerusalem for the feast. And and Herod was happy to receive Jesus. He had heard about the power that Jesus had and the tremendous miracles that Jesus was performing. And he hoped to see an exhibition, a demonstration, and possibly be entertained by a few miracles that Jesus might perform for him. But As he questioned Jesus, Jesus would not respond, didn't even answer him one word. Herod, frustrated, mocked and mistreated Jesus and then sent him back to Pilate. And suddenly Pilate had Jesus on his hands again. He 
he sought to release Jesus to the people because it was during the feast and it was custom to release a prisoner. And he thought that he could bypass the political power play of the religious leaders by going to the people and offering them to have one prisoner released. Certainly, with the popularity of Jesus among the people, they would choose Jesus and Pilate would be off the hook. But the religious leaders flank Pontius Pilate and they incite the people to, to ask for Barabbas and to be released. And, and so Pontius Pilate releases Barabbas. What to do with Jesus? They are forcing his hand. So Pilate decides to chastise Jesus, to have him scourged, hoping that when he presents a scourged Jesus, that that will satisfy their, their desire for the punishment and he can avoid the crucifixion of Jesus. And so Jesus undergoes the horrific lashings of a, a Roman scourge and, and now Pilate comes and presents Jesus a most pitiful figure. In Isaiah chapter 52, it says that that he was not even recognizable. Through all that he had gone through, Jesus had, had had his beard pulled out. He had been blindfolded and punched and, and asked, prophesy, who just struck you? He had been scourged with a Roman scourge. Oftentimes, and prisoners would die just under a scourging alone. On top of that, he had a crown of thorns that had been beaten into his head. Dehydrated, no doubt, sleep and deprived from having gone through an all-night ordeal of the trial. He presents Jesus before the people and believing and hoping that now they, they will be satisfied. But instead, the religious leaders incite the people to demand that they crucify him. And, and Pilate asks, why? What has he done? I have found no ill in him. And the crowd only cries the louder. Pilate, when he realizes that he cannot prevail in this situation against the crowd, and as now a riot becomes evident, Pilate knows that politically he cannot survive a riot to take place in Jerusalem during the Passover, and and so he acquiesces. He yields to the will of the high priests and the people incited by their leaders. But he asks for a bowl of water and he washes his hands in front of the people and he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. To which the people, they responded, let his blood be upon us and and upon our children. And so Pilate passes Jesus over to be crucified. The minute that Jesus is now reckoned to be crucified, he would be assigned to four soldiers that would accompany him from the judgment hall to the place where he is going to be crucified. Crucifixion would take place outside of the city itself, never within the city proper, but always in the most public of places. The Romans, they did not invent crucifixion, but it is said that they perfected 
and crucifixion. It was a way in which a person could be executed causing maximum pain and suffering and the Romans used it as a deterrent amongst the people that you do not want to mess with Rome and when you mess with Rome, there's a cross that is waiting for you. Jesus would be executed at Golgotha, which was outside of the city, but he would journey along the longest route possible. They would take the prisoner from the hall of judgment to the longest route possible to the place of of execution, thus putting him on parade, making a spectacle of him. The four soldiers would be one in front, one in back, and one on each side as they would march the prisoner through the streets, them carrying their cross. The soldier that was out in front would carry a placard which would list the, the crime that the person had committed as a warning to everybody in sight. Jesus uh, now, having suffered the loss of so much blood, being sleep-deprived and dehydrated, having survived the scourging and the mocking and the beatings and the mistreatment, did not have the physical strength and capacity to be able to carry the cross all the way to the place of execution. And so Simon Cyrenian, we are going to see, is going to be tapped by a Roman soldier. If a Roman soldier came and placed his blade on your shoulder, you were required now to carry whatever burden he required you up to a mile. You remember that Jesus said, if you're compelled to carry a burden one mile, you carry it in two. And Simon the Cyrenian is just there coming in from the country to most likely to worship at the temple and to celebrate now the Passover. But on this day, he would be required to assist Jesus in the carrying of his cross. We pick it up in the 26th verse of this, the 23rd chapter, the Gospel of Luke, and it says, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. Just less than a week earlier, the city of Jerusalem had come out to meet the worshipers there as Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city. Jesus was the talk of the city in all of the highways and byways, the nooks and crannies and the coffee shops and the bakeries. Jesus was being talked about of whether or not you thought that he is the Messiah or not. And the city was abuzz. Every day Jesus had been teaching in the temple. The previous day Jesus had been in the temple teaching. And suddenly now word got out. It is nine o'clock in the morning. The city is just uh, waking up. It is filled to overflowing with the pilgrims. And, and suddenly the word gets out that Jesus has been arrested and they are crucifying him. And he's on his way to execution right now. And the women came out and they lined the streets there of where Jesus was passing by. And when they saw him, they began to just weep over him. 
Isaiah says that, that he was beaten and so disfigured as to be not even recognizable as a man. And their hearts absolutely broke. And as Jesus went by, they, they wept and they mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. You remember that for a Jewish woman to not be able to have a child was considered to be a great travesty. But here Jesus says there's going to come a day when the womb that didn't have a child is going to be considered blessed, that the breasts that never nursed are, are going to be the preferred and and Jesus here is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that was coming in judgment. In AD 70, when Titus comes and brings his army in, he lays siege to the city. And remember, a siege meant that no one goes into the city and no one comes out of the city. Jerusalem had an underwater spring and it had a water source, but it didn't have a food supply. And so the multitude of people that were in the city without a food supply, the food ran out and quickly and suddenly hunger set in and shortly thereafter starvation began. The ones that perished first were the little ones, the children, the babies, and the suffering of the parents as they watched now their children perish because of starvation. Josephus records the horrors of what happened and the anarchy that took place within the walls of Jerusalem during that time when Rome had put its noose around the city. Jesus says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourself and for the judgment that is going to come. He says in verse 30, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and on the hills cover us. The suffering was so tremendous that death was a relief from the tragedy of everyday life and suffering and sorrow. He says, if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? He's talking about Rome. They do these things to the green wood. They do these things to the innocent. What will they do to the unrighteous? And Jesus here is the green wood. If they're crucifying him who has done nothing wrong, what will they do when Jerusalem rebels against the Roman authority? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. The Bible says prophetically that Jesus would be numbered amongst the transgressors, transgressors, plural. If there had only been one criminal that would have been crucified alongside of Jesus, then the Bible would not be inerrant and we would not believe that it was inspired and we would not hold every single word to be true. But there was not one criminal, there were two. He was numbered amongst the transgressors. And they were led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. 
And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. When they got to the place of Golgotha, the person to be crucified would be laid down on top of the cross. The knees would be bent slightly, the feet crossed, and a single spike would be driven right through both feet into the cross itself. The arms would be extended, pulled out, and ropes would be tied and fastened them to the cross, and then a nail or a spike would be driven right through the wrist in between the ulna and the radius, and their arms now would be pinned to the cross. The cross would be lifted up, a shallow hole dug ready to receive the cross, and then the cross would be slid down and it would jar into the, the bottom of that hole and the victim on there would receive this massive jolt and tearing at the places of the piercings. As they are crucifying Jesus, as he is undergoing the most excruciating of pain even imaginable, Jesus is loving them. Jesus is forgiving them. Jesus is interceding in prayer for those who were killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. The incredible example that Jesus sets before us that we are to love others at all times regardless of the circumstances that are in our lives. So oftentimes I can be guilty of blaming my own shortcomings on somebody else or, or even on myself. If I am short or snappy, I can say, well, I'm tired today or I've had a lot of stress or, or I'm not feeling good. And, and I am quick now to justify the reason that, that love isn't flowing out of my life. But when I look at Jesus, I realize there is no justification to not have love flow out of my life. That I have been called to be a vessel of God's love and to love regardless of who that person is or what I am going through in my own life. Jesus there being crucified in the act of being crucified was loving and interceding and praying and setting that example for each and every one of us. And they divided his garments and cast lots once again in fulfillment of the prophecy. The four soldiers that were assigned to a crucifixion after the victim was crucified, they could divide up the property of that victim and that would be part of their compensation for the, uh, the task that they had been in charge of. Jesus' possessions were divided amongst the four, and there was one possession that was left over. It was a garment. It was a, a single robe, the outer garment. It had no seam on it. It was beautiful, and it was expensive. It was not common for the, the soldiers to cast lots for the, the clothing, but because this was a, an important piece, they decided not to cut it into four pieces. The material itself would have been valuable. Material was hard to come by, and clothing was difficult as well. And so they 
decided amongst themselves, let's not destroy this, let's cast lots for it. And little did they know that they were fulfilling prophecy, that the casting of lots. Jesus is there now, crucified between the two criminals and and the people, it says, verse 35, stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. And while Jesus is offering himself up as a ransom for you and I, the religious leaders, they sneered at him and mocked him. On top of the physical pain that he was suffering, he now has this abuse, this emotional abuse as his enemies sat in his face sneering. In fulfillment of the prophecy, they surrounded me like the bulls of Bashan. And they sneered at him and mocked him. Even the soldiers got in on the act, verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. When a person was crucified, the crime that they had committed was written on a placard. It was the placard that the lead guard uh, carried as the person was led to the crucifixion. After they had nailed them to the cross, they would post the placard and nail it on top of the cross. This was the charge that they were crucified for. This was the crime that they had committed, and it served to be a warning to anybody else that contemplated such a crime that this would be the result. And there's a cross waiting for you if you oppose Rome. What was Jesus guilty of? What did Pilate to order to be written the charge against this man for which he was crucified? The declaration, this is the king of the Jews. When the religious leaders saw that placard, they immediately went to Pilate and said, you cannot put that sign over his head, but Pilate wouldn't relent. And they said, then at least change it to say, he said that he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. And he would not relent. And so posted in three languages, for everybody to read, this is the king of the Jews. And so the soldiers read it and they joined the religious leaders who were sneering and mocking and they mocked it in Jesus as well. And it didn't end there. Even the criminal that was being crucified with Jesus mocked him. And he is surrounded now by people mocking him as he is performing the greatest demonstration and act of love in the history of mankind. Not only the physical pain that he is experiencing, but the emotional opposition and abuse that he is taking while he is suffering for our sins. 
And one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somehow this criminal being crucified next to Jesus had faith to believe that even though Jesus was dying, was being crucified, that yet he would come into his kingdom. A greater faith than the disciples themselves were even exercising because at that moment they thought that the kingdom plans were completely gone and that all was lost as Jesus was being crucified. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It is remarkable. We have recorded in the scriptures what is the equivalent of a deathbed conversion. Someone putting their faith in Jesus Christ when their life is quickly ebbing from them and death is rapidly approaching them. It is the only example that we have of a deathbed conversion, but I believe that it serves to give each and every one of us hope Hope for every loved one that we know that does not have Christ as a part of their life, that, that if even with their dying breath that they ask Christ into their heart, that, that they will be received by him, that Jesus won't say, oh, now you want me. Uh, you know, now that you're at the end of your life, well, if you didn't want me earlier, I don't want you now, you know. <laughs> But that's not the heart of God. And it's not the heart of Christ. That no matter when, with the last breath, with the last beat of our heart, if we will ask Christ to come and save us and forgive us, that, that he is gracious and loving and forgiving enough to receive us into his kingdom. And now it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour was noon. Jesus was crucified at the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning. And from nine o'clock in the morning until noon, it was just a normal day. And there in Jerusalem, it says, but about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. From 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, it suddenly became dark, and a darkness covered over the land. It was a supernatural darkness that covered the land. There are skeptics of the Bible who will tell you that this isn't a supernatural phenomena. It's a natural phenomena, that this was just an eclipse of the sun. But I want you to know that, that that is an absolute impossibility 
because the Passover meal is always celebrated at a full moon, and that is a moving feast around the lunar calendar that takes place in the springtime. And so it is impossible, science tells us, to have an eclipse during a, a full moon. And so this was a supernatural darkness. Jesus, when he was arrested, said, this is your time when darkness prevails. And those final three hours that he hung on the cross, he hung in this darkness. And then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. He says, I lay down my life. I have a power to lay down my life and I can pick my life back and up again. And I will willingly lay it down as a ransom for many. Jesus dismisses his spirit. And Luke records those final words. Into your hands I commit my spirit. To you and I, that is just a saying that Jesus gave on the cross. There is not an emotional connection to those words for most of us. It is a quotation out of the Psalms, and, and Jesus quotes uh, here out of Psalm 31.5. But, but just as we have our bedtime prayers that we teach little children. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And mothers teach their children this prayer. There is a similar prayer that Jewish mothers teach their children. But in that prayer, right out of Psalm 31.5, this verse is a part of that. This night I lay me down to sleep and into thy hands I commit my spirit is what they say is what they pray and when Jesus says into thy hands I commit my spirit he adds one word father into your hands I commit my spirit a phrase that every child and every Jew knew Jesus uses as his last spoken words on the cross. So when the centurion saw what had happened, verse 47, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Jesus said that when I am lifted up from the earth that I will draw all men to myself. There is a, a magnetism of the cross that draws our soul to God. And, and we see that the minute that Jesus breathes his last breath, that that magnetic attraction of our soul began. The centurion declares <laughs> instantly, this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The crowd begins to disperse, and it is late in the day. Jesus dies at three o'clock in the afternoon and, and now the sun is waning and suddenly the Sabbath is uh, approaching. 
The bodies could not stay on the cross. The crucifixion had to be complete by sundown. And so the order was given that the legs of all three of them would be broken. The breaking of the legs of a person being crucified would hasten the death. It would bring it on quickly because the way in which a person would breathe when you are on the cross hung in this position here is that you would push up with your legs in order to lift your diaphragm to draw a breath and then you would release yourself back down. Once the legs are broken with no ability to lift yourself up from your legs, you would have to pull yourself from your shoulders and your arms, which would quickly fatigue over time and you would then begin to asphyxiate, causing you to go into unconsciousness and then into suffocation. The order was given that the three criminals would have their legs broken and the guards come and they break the first one. When they come to Jesus, they see that he has already expired. They take a sword and thrust it into his side to make sure that it's not just that he's passed out and, and water and blood pour forth from his side. They go on to the third criminal and break his legs and and once again, all this in fulfillment of the prophecy that not one bone of the Passover lamb would be broken. The sun is rapidly heading towards the horizon and now it is time to get the bodies uh, off of the cross. It says in verse 50, now behold, there was a man named Joseph a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. You'll remember that, uh, that earlier that morning, the Sanhedrin at first light had met. The charge of blasphemy was leveled against Jesus and the Sanhedrin ratified that charge of blasphemy and then Jesus was taken to Pilate. Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, and he objected to that in charge and he did not consent to, to the vote against Jesus. It says that he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. He has some type of a relationship, friendship with Nicodemus. You'll remember that Nicodemus was the chief educator in all of Israel who had come to Jesus by night asking him about the kingdom of God. And Jesus had told him that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom. Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and asks for the body, but Nicodemus is going to assist Joseph in the burial of Jesus. It says, this man went to Pilate, verse 52, and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. And that was the preparation, the Sabbath drew near. And the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. They watched as Jesus was hastily prepared for burial, wrapped <laughs> in the linens by these two guys that had probably never done this in their life. 
And when they saw the way in which Jesus had been prepared, they knew they had to come back and, and take care of this properly to make sure that every bit of blood was washed off of his body and that he was lovingly and carefully wrapped in the linens. And love compelled them to not rest until they knew that Jesus had been honored properly in the tradition. And so they observed the tomb and and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. The markets are closing. The sun is going down. The Sabbath is almost here. And as they are on their way now back to their houses, they stop in the markets and they get everything that they are going to need to come back and to prepare Jesus's bodies. And they get to their houses and the Sabbath begins. Friday night. It will be Shabbat from Friday night till Saturday night when once again they can come out of their houses and they can perform work. It was considered work to prepare a body for burial. And so on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to do any work. So they could not come back on the Sabbath and, and properly take care of Jesus's body. But Saturday night, there would be not enough light to be able to carefully and lovingly tend to Jesus' body. They would have to wait through another night to the next morning to be able to come and to attend to the body of our Lord. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. As we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for a minute back to verse 43. And in verse 43, it says, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When you hear the word paradise, what images come up in your head? Paradise. What, what is paradise going to be like? And, and do you know that there's an awful lot of places on earth that are called paradise? <laughs> Do you know that in the United States, we have 27 places named paradise. You can live in paradise right here in the United States. And there are four places in Jamaica that are called in paradise. Israel has a place called paradise. I've never been there. I'm going to have to look that up next time. And, and then I discovered that even Albania has a place called paradise. I never knew that. Right here in California, there is a paradise that is just outside of Sacramento. You can visit paradise right there in California. But you don't even need to go that far to visit paradise because we have a paradise right here in Las Vegas. <laughs> In fact, many people, when they come and they actually visit Las Vegas, they, they never actually visited Las Vegas. You see, Paradise is a township that, that was created by the mob. It was one mile wide and four miles long, the, the original. And they developed it as they started to build casinos on this township to avoid paying taxes to the city of Las Vegas. <laughs> 
Today, that township of paradise, that unincorporated area, has, has extended to 57 square miles. It includes the casinos, the strip. It includes McCarran Airport and the, uh, the main campus of UNLV. If you fly into McCarran, go to the strip, go to the expo, ride the monorail, and then return, you never actually were in Las Vegas. <laughs> You visited paradise, uh, right? Right here. <laughs> but when Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise, I'm not thinking they came to Vegas. <laughs> but I want you to know that paradise also isn't heaven. Many people believe that and conjure up the image that when Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise, that he meant that they were going to be in heaven on that day. But that's not where paradise is that Jesus is talking about. There was no one in heaven, and there was no one in heaven on that day. You see, paradise was part of Hades. Hades was the place where every single soul, when it... it breathed its last breath, that is the collection and the holding place. There were two parts to Hades. One was a place of judgment where every single person who died outside of the faith is held, was held, and is being held even now waiting for the great white throne of judgment. But to the people who died in faith, uh, they went over into the other compartment. It's also known as Abraham's bosom. It's a place of, uh, of comfort and waiting. And what they were waiting for was Messiah to be able to come and to wash away their sins because there is nothing that will remove the stain of sin upon a soul except the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And, and so though they had died in faith, their souls were still stained and they could not enter into the presence of Almighty God. And so this criminal there in Abraham's bosom in paradise, and Jesus goes and he washes the souls of, of all of the saints. And after he now resurrects, when he ascends, he takes captivity captive and takes it with him. He takes all of those people. Think about that. He takes all of those people who had been waiting there in Abraham's bosom, in paradise. He takes them and he brings them to heaven. And the gates of heaven are thrown open. And all of these souls now come in and inhabit heaven. Jesus says that in my father's house there are many mansions. And I go there to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. And Jesus says for the joy that was set before me endured the cross. And, and the suffering and the shame. But that moment that he got to lead everybody into the presence of his heavenly father and into heaven itself, what a glorious and joyous moment that had to have been. Today there is a sign in paradise that says closed. <laughs> there are no souls that are in paradise any longer because today a believer whose souls have already been washed in faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ when we breathe our last breath to be absent from the body 
is to be present with the Lord, we enter into heaven because our sins have been washed away. And, and so we may get a tour of it one day, but uh, we will never spend any time there. We will be immediately into heaven. And what is heaven like? Oh, oh my goodness, I don't know. <laughs> but I get excited thinking about it. I mean, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it even entered into a person's imagination what God has prepared for us, to be connected eternally to the presence of God himself, unhindered fellowship with God by sin or, or condemnation or judgment, the fullness of God's love where we will know him as we are known by him. I know that, uh, that Paul, who had a, a vision of a, a heaven and the third heaven there, he, he, he writes, you'll remember that this present suffering of this time is not even worthy to be compared to the glory of what God has prepared for you, to what awaits those difficulties and hardships, they are significant. They are not insignificant in and of themselves. It is difficult to be a pilgrim, to be a sojourner here upon this earth, to be living counter to the culture, to the world, to the, to the efforts of the enemy, to thwart our faith and and to experience the trials and the tribulations. Oh, in this world you will have tribulation, Jesus says, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. No matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult the path, the stretch of your journey right now, I want you to be encouraged that you are one day closer <laughs> to being in the presence of your heavenly Father. In the book of Philippians, it says, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just or lovely or pure of a good report, if there be anything virtuous, meditate on these things. Think upon these things. It is a good exercise to stop and to meditate on heaven and what heaven is going to be like when we are rejoined together again with loved ones when we are surrounding the throne of mercy and grace, when we are experiencing the unending and peace and joy and love that flows like a river from the heart of God, where there are no more sufferings, no more sorrows, no more sickness, no more death, no more tears, where every tear will be wiped away and we will live forever and eternity in the presence of Almighty God. Every single day draws us one day closer to that glorious reality. And Jesus paid it all for us to experience that. All glory and honor and power and authority to you, Jesus Christ, forever and ever, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you 
for your willingness to go to the cross and to pay the penalty. Father, thank you for your infinite love towards us. While we were yet at enmity with us, you still pursued us and chased us down with an unending river of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us this day. And whatever trials we are going through, whatever weariness of soul, whatever travails and tribulations that we are experiencing, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would sustain us, that you would help us, that you would renew us, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Father, we love you. We trust with all our hearts. We put our faith entirely in you. May you be magnified and glorified in our lives. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray.